Book of Romans, laying a solid foundation. The Living Commentary by Reverend Paul Bucknell, first presented in Benin City, with Spread the Word Ministries. This is the first of three lectures, Romans one to Romans three twenty, discussing the cross and the ditch. This is produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net. Releasing God's truth to a new generation. The Book of Romans have called us laying a solid foundation. Laying a solid foundation. Sometimes we're so eager to get a building up, so eager to get a ministry going, we're willing to take shortcuts on the foundation. But in the years to come, you'll pay the consequences, won't you? The book of Romans is of such importance that it, if it's not rightly understood, no matter how eager you are in the beginning of your ministry, you'll find that there's a shortcoming. You'll find that somehow your ministry is lacking. Now today, as we go through the book of Romans, uh, we will begin to find why this foundation is so critical and important. I am so excited. It's like a feast. A feast is something you enjoy. But actually, the feast behind the scenes is nourishment to your bodies and making you strong. You enjoy it, and you're not thinking about how it's making your body strong. Well, Romans is like that. When you begin to get into this book, you begin to understand its power, its potential. And you begin to get excited. And then it begins to strengthen you. Right now, we're going to be um, dividing this up this morning into three particular lectures. First of all is Romans chapter 1 through 5. Then we'll go through Romans 6 to 11. And then Romans 12 to the end in chapter 16. I have recently been studying the book of Romans and have found it is just... So wonderfully exciting. And I trust with you today that we will also be able to join. Now, I want you to know this is just what we call an overview. Because Romans, you can spend 10 hours, 100 hours, more hours. So when we spend three hours, I hope this is just to give you an overview so you yourself can dive in. And let the Word of God begin to strengthen you. By the way, there might be things you disagree with, okay? That's fine. Uh, we, each of us, let the Word of God begin to shake us. That's the way I look at my own life. When I go to God's Word, I want the Word of God to speak to me, begin to shake me. Shake me, but what do I mean? Shake the parts that are no good. Shake the parts that are not strong. Not based on the truth. Now, sometimes we face those truths. And it will be up to you to study more in your own time and to see what the Word of God really says. Remember, the foundation is not what I'm saying. The foundation is what the Word of God says. And I and you as a faithful preacher, our ministry will only be as well as we can take the Word of God and present it to others. As we go on, let's open in the word of
of God through prayer. Almighty God, we want to thank you in the great name of Jesus, through the blood of Christ, Lord, that you would come and teach us the word of God. We ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds in the through the Holy Spirit, Lord, and help us understand and discern these truths. That you would grapple, Lord, with the issues that we struggle with. That you would apply the Word of God in such a way that we would be strengthened. We would be encouraged. We would be challenged. And now, Lord, we look to you. Be our teacher. Be our mentor. Be our trainer. Oh, Lord, that we could be strong. That we could be those workmen that need not be ashamed. Oh, Lord. One day we, each of us, will give an account to you. Oh, Lord, we eat, all have the Bible in front of us. We all have the book of Romans in front of us. But, Lord, let us lay the foundation in our heart and in our ministries for the glory of God. Amen. As we go through Romans, I, I want to, there's many ways you can kind of divide the book up. But I'm going to divide it up into six parts. Now, I'll be speaking in three lectures. The first lecture will cover chapter 1 through chapter 5. In your book, on page 5, you'll see the outline that I'll be using. Now, what I've done is made this book, I focused this book around the theme of righteousness. Righteousness is all so important. Righteousness, what is it? Righteousness is God having us to be able to live out lives that are pleasing to him. Right lives, if you would think of it. The lives that are proper, good, that are pleasing to him and pleasing to others. It's the right kind of life that we ought to be living. Now, as we go through this book, we'll look at righteousness revealed through the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I'm right here under A. Righteousness obsolete. In other words, it's gone. That's discussing our sin. Chapter 1, verse 18 to 320. Part C. Righteousness made. That's justification. I'll explain more what that word means. Chapter 321 to chapter, end of chapter 5. Now that will be our first lecture. As we go on, we'll talk about righteousness attained, righteousness enlarged, righteousness spread. But I'll discuss more of those later. I've tried to make an, an acronym, R-O-M-A-N-S, if you see it there. Romans. And each one, where you can look at, is a graphical outline. And perhaps you can do this with me. The first section, we have a cross. Okay, can you do that with me? Make a cross. This is the gospel proclaimed, okay? The second part is what I call a ditch. It goes down. Can make a ditch with me. All right. That's chapter 118 to chapter 320. That's talking about our sin. The third part we're talking about today is righteousness made. It's a road. Okay? It's easier. The road, right? Do you have those three parts? Yes. What's the first one? The cross. The second. The ditch. Third, the road. These are so important. When we are able to take these, it will become the foundation of all the other things we understand. Now, we're going to be looking at marriage starting tomorrow. And you will see how much this is part of having a great marriage. It is so important and so wonderful. So, as we think about it, 
we're going to discuss the cross first. How he presents the gospel in the introduction. The ditch, the sin, the road, the plan, the world, and then the kingdom. Now our goal is to proclaim and defend God's great plan to establish his righteousness through the gospel of Jesus Christ in all his peoples, Jews and Greeks. Proclaim and defend. You will find that Paul is not just stating what the gospel is. He is defending it. And I'll get more into that as we go on this morning. He makes very clear how we should not go to this way or this way. Don't have this error. Don't think about this wrongly. He's trying to defend it, trying to understand the problems that we will have, because they had them back then, with understanding the gospel. Now, he wants the truth is important because we will not have righteous lives unless we live the truth. The truth has to get in us. The truth is going to be twofold. One is with God. How as we, as unrighteous people, can have peace with God? The second part is how can we live righteous lives with others? And again, if we think about our marriage, well, it does have something to do with God, but it more has to do with this level, how we relate to our spouses. Now, there's three purposes I summarize for the book of Romans. First of all, it was a Jewish tract. In the early Roman church, there were a lot of Jewish people that came to know Jesus. Now, we're talking, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in Rome, what we find is there were a lot of Jewish people comprising of that church. The Jewish people understood the Old Testament. Do you think the Gentiles, the non-Jews that just came to know the Lord knew the Old Testament? Probably not. There was one group of people who really knew the Word of God. It's like growing up in church. The other people just came from outside in the world. They don't know anything about the Word of God. Big difference. But when you meet in the same church and you have differences of opinion, well, you begin to have difference. Is in relationship. Now, Paul works through that, but he is really always concerned that the Jewish people will come to know the Lord. But did God call the Apostle Paul to the Jewish people? No. He called them, you shall go to the nations. And that's what Paul did. But whenever he went to the nations, he first preached to the Jews and then to the uh, non-Jews. So he was faithful, but he always had a point of clarifying this. By the way, Whenever he went to a city and preached, and I don't know if that happens to you, but he was beat up many places. He was thrown in jail, accused, falsely accused. Why? It was mostly because Jewish people did not understand the word of God and persecuted him, his own people. Not because of the people where he was, it was the Jewish people. The second purpose we talk about is to clarify the gospel just to state it in such a way that it's clear to us. Thirdly, to help the church understand why Paul had not yet visited them. We see that Paul has, in chapter 1, verse 8 to 15, he discusses these very things. And then in chapter 15, as he begins to close, he again says, I'm sorry, I haven't been able to be with you early. I never visited you. And so he's writing a letter. Now, here's an apostle going to one of the biggest churches, and later would be one of the, the, the biggest church in the early centuries of the Christian church. And there we find that Paul had not visited 
and later the only way he would be able to visit if what? When he was in shackles, in chains. So he never really had the glory of going as an apostle in that sense, except in a sense with chains that God brought him. So he never really... So let's continue on. Now, in our book, we'll be going through this. Uh, we went over the outline in chapter, uh, on page 5. We will skip over the summary and go right into page 17. Romans 1, 1 to 17. Okay? If you want to follow along, if you just want to write notes somewhere, that's fine too. Romans 1, 1 to 17. We have a long journey today. And, but the journey is, as I hope, as a great feast for all of us. Okay, so the first part is the cross. Romans 1, 1 through 17. This is where God's righteousness is shown through the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the word gospel is used four times in this short section. Verse 1, verse 9, verse 15, verse 16. And it's here uh, that we want to exceed what this gospel is. If you're with me, in verse 1 it says, Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus. Do you know that slaves in the Roman Empire at that time were either two to one or three to one. In other words, for every three people, uh, you would have either two or three slaves for every free person. The church was supposedly probably pretty representative. About half the church was slaves. And Paul, when he thought of himself, he called himself as a slave, as a servant, as owned. And we'll see why he calls him that. Here he's called a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if anybody is here, our pastors or church pastors or evangelists, you are set apart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a minister of the gospel. And you say, well, we better know what that gospel is. And so we will spend a little bit time understanding what that is. It's righteousness revealed. Uh, first of all, we find it's a foundational ministry. Do you realize, uh, anyone ever hear of John Wesley before? Yeah? yeah? What's interesting about John Wesley, he became converted when he heard someone going through the Martin Luther's commentary, the preface, the very beginning. They were just reading it out loud. And he said this, back in 1738, before the gospel was hardly in the Europe at all, okay? But through John Wesley and others that God was working, they, a great change happened. John Wesley said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This was John Wesley. Do you realize he was already a missionary at that time? He went to America to witness to the Indians there, the native people. And he said this when he was there, 
I went to America to convert the Indians. Oh, but oh, who shall convert me? I hope you're not like that. You're preaching the gospel, but you see the sin in your own life. The sin is winner, not Jesus. And you don't know how to win. And you, like John Wesley, say, Oh, who's going to convert me? But I hope in the same way that you say, I know that Jesus Christ has died for my sin. That he has liberated me. That he is my victor. He is my savior. There is such a difference in the power of ministry. And I hope each one of you make sure you have that faith in Christ. Make sure the people you work with have that faith in Christ. We don't want people just raising their hands. Oh yes, that sounds good. That is not the gospel. Now they might raise their hand and they might believe. But make sure they believe. And the raising the hand affirms the belief they have. It's not the raising of hands that saves. It never says that in the scripture. It says those who believe in Christ. And there's a huge difference. Sometimes when I talk to my children, I'm trying to see. I could easily say, oh, you believe in Jesus? Oh, yeah. Sunday school class. Do you believe? Oh, yeah. Raise your hand. Oh, yeah. But in their hearts, have they repented from their sin? Have they been a, met God and sense and awareness of who they were and how they fell short of the glory of God? Without the acknowledgement of sin, then they find that there's no need of the gospel. And this is why Paul, as we go along this morning, you will see how he first introduces the gospel, then he amplifies it. There is so much learned from... I wish I had more time with you. I could learn so much. Even my brothers I spend more time with. My mind is so concentrated on these lectures, I don't have much time to talk to my good brothers. <laughs> Only a little. But I, I know there's so much. And uh, in the New Jerusalem above, we will talk more. <laughs> we will celebrate more. We will worship more. Let's look at verses 2 to 6 a little closer. What I'm going to do is, on each portion, I'm going to slowly take a portion and look more closely at it. In verses 2 to 6, let me read it for you. He says, Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. That means all the non-Jews, all the nations. For his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Let me just pick out a few words here. He says he promised beforehand. What Paul is trying to say is, what I'm saying to you about God trying to reach all the peoples with the love of Christ. This is something not new. This is something promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This is not something new. God had this planned all the way through. We talk in 2 Samuel, it talks about how God would take David's son and lift him up on a throne to be king. 
This again is Jesus. Talked about in 2 Samuel 7. It says, according to the flesh, it talks about how God became man. He took on human flesh, describing more in Philippians 2. But he was declared God, as a son of God, by the power of the resurrection from the dead. He came alive. Not just spiritually. Now, there's a lot of people who believe in ghosts. I don't know if you believe in ghosts. Or people around you believe in spirits. I worked for about 10 years in China, and I still work with Chinese over in America. A lot of them fear ghosts, spirits. Their ancestors, they come and they walk around. So they will offer them special feast. But this is not the resurrection we're talking about. We're talking about the resurrection where Jesus, his body, came alive. And he met in their midst. The power of the resurrection. Death could not keep him down. Apostle Paul describes he received grace and apostleship. Grace, speaking of his own salvation. Apostleship, his own ministry. We understand how God blesses us. He had to preach to the nations. Let me go on to verse 16 to 17. Very important verses. These you probably have all memorized. I know you probably have. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Now do you see what I'm saying when I talk about revealed here? For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Revealed means it's, it's brought to us. It's open to our mind. It's help, helping us to understand what is true. Adam and Eve, they were righteous until they fell. After they fell, all mankind were fallen. No one lived a righteous life unless God was working in them in a special way. And so through Adam, we find that man was a sinner. And so the question is, how is God going to bring man back to the place where Adam and Eve were? This is a question we're going to be facing when we look at marriage, by the way. Because when we get close to somebody, that's where sin becomes very apparent. And what we're going to be looking for is, how can God make me a righteous man? How can God make me strong so that I can be that woman, that man, to be able to uh, love that one person? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Um, I've described more in the book what that can mean. I have about five meanings written down there if you want to explore that. But basically, it's a work that God brought in them and a, God, a work that is through faith. In other words, it's from faith that they receive Christ. It's through faith that they continue to go on and live out a righteous life. God is very concerned how we live our life. It's not just that we believe, but it's how we live. It's all wrapped up in the gospel, not separated. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the truth of God. We might be brought to courts. In America, it's not looking good. I don't know how long before I will not be in prison myself. 
I'm not supposed to speak about certain things. And soon they'll make laws that I cannot speak about things. Pastors aren't supposed to speak about homosexuality or adultery and how wrong they are. That's what's happened in America. It's becoming very decadent. And they're going to pass rules, what you can preach, what you can write about. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, you see. If I might go to jail, but I'm still not going to be ashamed there. For this is the truth of God. It is the power of God unto salvation. This is what brings salvation. We must never look to truth because we are afraid, or because of money, or because of reputation. We need to preach a gospel that people like to hear. That's not the truth. We preach a gospel that he was revealed to us. Because this is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both to the Jew and to the Greek, which means everybody. It means you, it means I, me. So let's go on and look at the second section. The first one is what? Some of you just came here. It's the cross. Can you do this with me? The cross. It's where the gospel is proclaimed. Now we're going to talk about the ditch. Do that with me. The ditch. You know, as you're walking along, whoops, I don't want to step there. But when we come into this world, we're in the ditch. When we come into the world, we're in the ditch. We're in that sin. And righteousness is obsolete. It's not there. Now, man's sin and guilt is evident through sin's presence in judgment. Now, this is a very important section. I, I believe a lot of Christendom, believers, do not quite rightly understand this section. And I hope that you can join with me in trying to understand this. This goes from chapter 1, verse 18, right to chapter 3, verse 20. The question we're trying to answer here is, why does man need God's provided righteousness? Why do I need it? If you find an advertisement, someone comes up to you and hands you something, they're saying, buy my telephone, buy my cell phone, get my plan. Why do they say that? They're saying, this plan is better than others, so get this one. Our people are saying this, why should I believe in Jesus? Why? There's lots of religions. I'm busy with my own life. If they do not understand the sin, then they do not understand the need for the gospel. Now let's go on to look at this uh, section a little more carefully. If you have your book, page 27. So let's look at verse 18, if we could. Chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now we just read about the righteousness of God being revealed through Jesus Christ in the gospel. What is revealed here? The wrath of God. God's great anger is being revealed here. This is revealed from heaven. Now, how do we see this being revealed? The righteousness of God was revealed through the gospel. How is the wrath of God being revealed? 
It says it's been revealed because against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the point is this. Wherever you see unrighteousness, you're going to begin to see God's wrath revealed. Let's think through this a minute. Is it true? Yes, it's very true. Wherever you see people depart from the truth, you will see the consequences in their life. If people are gambling, what's happening? They're covetous. They start losing. They lose money. They go in debt. They start stealing money. The marriage breaks apart. What happens if lust is loose? Well, there's no love toward one spouse. He's looking elsewhere. Then he's caught. He's trapped. What if he's lying? He's trying to pretend he's a great pastor. Down deep he knows he's not, but he likes to present himself as such. Just a hypocrite. But you see, underneath that God will bring consequences in one's life. Wherever we don't follow the truth, there will be consequences. Now I want you to understand a principle here because this is important. Notice that God revealed his truth to mankind. Man here says he suppresses the truth. What does suppress do? You push down. The truth is what? Being pushed up. It's going to come up like the spring water. Suppressing means you're pushing it down hard. God revealed his truth. Man doesn't want it. Does God want man to understand truth? Yes. Has man revealed his truth? Yes. Now let's look a little closer at this, how he's revealed that truth. It says in the next verses, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. This is where God shone. Now we call this general revelation. Okay? General revelation. Meaning just through how he made us, through our awareness of the world around us, through our conscience, we know certain truths about God. Invisible attributes. That God is eternal. He's powerful. But man just naturally suppress it. When I go out on the streets, he might be of a different skin color, but I know something about him. I know something about her. I know something about me. You see, it's my sin. I, I, there's that knowledge of truth within me. What am I going to do with that truth? What we find here is that man, to different degrees, suppresses that truth. Now, let me explain a little bit more. But remember, this is clearly seen. Every man is without excuse. When a man says he lives a good life, what are you going to say? What are you going to think? Yeah, that person is good. It looks like his family's better than mine. But down underneath, you have to let the gospel truth hit your mind. No, this man is suppressing the truth. Somehow, some way, I might not see it, 
but I know how. When I'm evangelizing, I'm always trying to ask the Spirit, how is this person suppressing the truth? How is he holding back the truth? Because it's there that he's going to find judgment in this life. If he lies, he's going to not have friends. He's not going to be an open person. People won't like him because he'll hold back his true self. Well, in verse 23 to 28, we find the cycle of rejection. Let's notice this. This is a good picture of our society. You want to understand your society? This is where you look. In verse 23, 25, 26. Page 29, there's a chart, and that's what I'm referring to. In verse 23, 25, 26, I'm using a New American Standard Bible. Three times he says they exchanged something. They took something and they gave it up for something else. In verse 23, it says they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. In verse 26, he exchanged the natural function for which is unnatural. So notice, after each exchange, after verse 23, for example, look at what happened in stage one. They go from zero, stage zero, where there's natural revelation, to stage one, where God gave them over. Now this phrase, God gave them over, will be repeated three times. Verse 24, 26, and 28. So once... I give up the, the invisible God for an image. It's like I'm making a compromise in my mind, and so God allow, gives me over to the lust of my impurity. What I believe about God will shape my morals. And if a person is immoral, you know something's wrong with his view of God. It's true even with a believer. Can a believer have an imperfect concept of God? Yes. And that's why we need the book of Romans to lay that foundation to build us up and make us strong. Because wherever you struggle, it really is a battle with knowing who God is. Notice stage two. God gave them over to degrading passions. To degrading passions. Why? Because of verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And so God gave them over. Now let's understand this principle. Does God want man to understand truth? Yes. But when man insists, persists in doing wrong, God at a certain point will say, okay, you're on a plateau, I put a door here, but I'm going to open that door and you're going to slide down to the next level. Now I have a door here. It's not like you're going to chuk, 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 go all the way down in one instant. Not usually people fall that way. They go stage by stage. <clears throat> With every stage you go down, there's a further rejection of who God is. And the third stage, God gave them over to a depraved mind. You see, when it talks about homosexuality here, 
And you can think of all sorts of lust. You know they have changed their morals. And so when I know my politicians are right now legislating pro-homosexuality, I know there's something in their hearts and about their God. Now they say they're Christians. But what does this teach me? It teaches me they're believing something else. I won't be fooled by them. No, what should I believe by in our congregation? A man says, I have this problem. We have to bring them back to the gospel because that's where the key is. Their understanding of God and their sin. So it's a rejection of light. It's not like God is not trying to reach out to the people. If you meet up or you sense that God doesn't, is trying to hold back the truth from people, that's a total misunderstanding. In chapter 2, verse 114, he goes on and discusses a different group of people. In chapter 1, at the end, verse 18, right to the end, he's talking about sin in the world in general. But there are those religious people. Back then, it was the Jewish people who knew all about the law. They told them the right from the wrong. And they say, oh, we're not like the world. We're not like the world. But notice what he says in verse 1. Therefore you are without excuse every man who passes judgment. For you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. The religious person is guilty of the same thing. What's the difference? The religious person covers himself up with a set of a mindset that excuses himself from God's judgment. They're without excuse. But whenever I make a judgment against somebody, that establishes that I have recognized that that be a, a law. Even if I don't know the law. If I know someone has hurt another person, and I'm upset. In my mind, I've made a judgment that that person should not be doing that action. Now, when I do that action to my own wife, I might say, well, she's my wife. I can do that. But I already judged myself because over there I said that's wrong. And so it's definitely wrong here too. So the judgment is actually a self-condemnation of my own self. And when we come and begin to analyze these things, we find in verse 11, there is no partiality with God. No partiality. Verse 15, he says, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. You can use your conscience to protect yourself. You can use it to Defend yourself. But all mankind have a conscience, even if they don't have the Bible. And we can speak to them. Are you true to your conscience? Do you actually carry out that kind of life you know you ought to carry out? And then nobody can do that. And so everyone, everyone will be condemned who will render to every man according to his deeds. 
Let me just ask you, do you recognize in your own life that you have fallen short of God's standard? Now, you say, well, I'm a, believer. I'm a preacher. I know. But I know in my life. You don't know. You don't know, right? I'm wearing a black suit, right? That makes me holy, right? No, 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 no. Let me, let me get the truth here. This Paul Rucknell is a sinner. I know all the sins I did. I could list them and then make a pile from here as high up you could reach. Much higher. Can you be open and say, you know, that's really who I am. I never deserve God to reach out to me in love. Now this is important. Because if you cannot acknowledge as a minister of the gospel how God had mercy on you, you will never be able to have mercy on others. To the degree you understand how much God would save you out of his great compassion and you never deserved it, is the same kind of compassion be able to have toward others. He who knows little sin will be forgiven little sin. But if you really understand the full implications, how I was so jealous of that person, how I hurt that person and spoke evil against him, how I backbited, how I made that plan to get revenge, we find, Lord, I have not lived a righteous life, but walked in the ditch. And this is how Paul concludes this section, verses 9 to 20. These are verses I often speak of. They're so clear. And he's quoting again from the Old Testament. Paul does this all the way through the book of, of Romans, from Isaiah, from Psalms here. First of all, in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, there is none righteous. We must not go out into the streets preaching the gospel thinking that man is inherently natural, uh, righteous. He is not inherently righteous. Nor does he understand. He does not really understand the things of God. Nor, verse 11, does he seek for God. Now let me make a little point here. Sometimes we will find people seeking God. But that will not be because of his inherent pursuit of God. That will be because the Spirit of God is really working in his life at that point. But on his own, no man, it says here in the scriptures, will seek for God. And sometimes we just think, man is on neutral ground, right? Oh yeah, he's just waiting to hear the gospel. This is not what this is saying. Man is not neutral. Man is already in the ditch. His car is broken down. His body is broken down. He's already under the weight of sin and death. He's going to die. We all know he's a sinner. You, you, anybody going to here live on their own forever? No, we need Jesus, right? Well, we're, we're all sinners. That's the proof, right? He's going to die. It was only Jesus who took our sins on him, so he died. But we don't seek for God. Now, we might look for a religiosity. We might look for people uh, to look on us as good. But that's the difference. We're concerned with image there, not with righteousness. Verse 12, none who does good. Verse 18, no fear of God before their eyes. 
description after description. Whenever I begin to get confused about my ministry, about pride, or that things are going well, this is the time to come back to these verses, to realize our roots. I never, never deserved one good thing from God. This is the element of grace. Otherwise, you're going to say, God owes me salvation. That's a big error. God doesn't owe anyone salvation. God doesn't need to love us. That's out of his compassion and choice, which we'll see later, Romans. Unless we understand this truth, we will put demands on God, a wrong concept, that God ought to save everyone. And for example, I know some people, they're very upset. Well, why doesn't God save those people over there if he really loved them? From what we understood, we can say this. First of all, God has revealed truth to them. Right? Verse 18, 19, 20, chapter 1. He has revealed truth to them. So don't think that God has not given them a witness. He does care. Now, how are they responding? Well, probably like us. They don't care. We don't like God. They're not looking for God, not really. If they're looking for religion, they're looking for some cult, it's to make them look good. To kind of cover up their sin. To think on their own somehow they can deal with their sin and that I'm good enough to meet God. But that's all mistaken error. So it's God's grace that he speaks to us in such a way that I'm humble, I'm broken, I need Jesus Christ in my life. This is the question, you see. Until we're asking this, until my children, children of a pastor, right, children of a missionary, they know all the truth. But do you know your own sin and offense against God and others? This is what they have to grapple with. Have they met God, you see? Because you can be close to God and God's people without being close to God. Which when Isaiah in chapter 6, God revealed himself, he said, Whoa, am I ever a sinner? I have defiled the world with the words I said. It's not the image, it's our heart. And God sees through the heart. Then verse 20 says that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. This is the truth. The implication, all the people will perish without Jesus Christ. We know they're dying. They're dying ever too quick. Someone couldn't get their medicine, they died. Too young. But in one sense... We all already should have died. It's God being gracious. He preserves our life and gives us so many years to live. If God accounted us according to our judgment, we would be judged early on. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve an extension of life. In the Gentiles, we see there's an obvious sin where man fell short. With the Jews, there was the obvious guilt. They were under the law. All the world stands condemned. 
exceptions. There's no excuses because there's no exceptions. Let's pray. Almighty God, we want to thank you for your wonderful ways of working in our life. We need you to work deeper, Lord, to help us never to be ashamed of the gospel. Because you have saved us. You have taken away our sin. You have made us your own. Oh, Lord, we never deserve it. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are deeply touched by our own awareness of your grace in our life, the way you reach out to us, the way you helped us when no one else could help. And so, Father, speak to us, teach us, instruct us, O Lord, that all the more as we understand how great our sin is, we will understand that your love is even greater and pass on that sense of compassion and mercy to others. In Christ we pray. Amen. This has been the first lecture of three on the overview of Romans by Reverend Paul Bucknell. This has been produced by Biblical Foundations for Freedom, www.foundationsforfreedom.net, releasing God's truth to a new generation. Please continue on listening to the following two lectures on laying the solid foundations, an overview of the Book of Romans.